Sudan is one of those countries that you heard from time to time in the news, especially when something bad happened. Maybe you have heard of the Darfur genocide or the South Sudan separation. But Sudan isn't just those. It is also home of the Blue Nile and the White Nile. I associate Sudan with the Kingdom of Kush. I love Sudanese Jabana coffee, especially the one with ginger. It is also a place where an inspiring popular uprising in 2019 offered through the dictator Omar al-Bashir. I do have connection to Sudan. My dear friend Anna lived in Khartoum for a while before she took that ill-fated Ethiopian airline flight that crashed in Addis Ababa in 2019. I befriended a Sudanese doctor in Cairo a few years ago. His name is Hadi. We call him the prince because he could trace his bloodline to the Al-Mahdi of the siege of Khartoum fame. Two of our friends in Cairo, Marine from Switzerland and Kawi from Japan, moved to Khartoum last year for work. Every year I promise myself that I will finally visit Khartoum. Well, on April 15 this year, war and conflict rear its ugly head in Khartoum. There were shootings in the street, planes were bombed in Khartoum airport. You could see airstrikes in the city from the news coverage. No Sudanese civilians wanted this war. It was caused by two generals who think that the country belongs to them. As we record this episode, Hadi is still in Sudan, but out of Khartoum. Kao and Marine have been successfully evacuated along with thousands of lucky foreigners out of the country. In the first part of this episode, we will hear the voice notes from Marine. Uh, she sent me her thoughts daily while she was surviving the war in Khartoum. On the second part of this episode, Laura and Peter talked to Elaf Ibrahim, who left Khartoum with her mother and four siblings to reach Cairo. It took them a week in what used to take two days. They left everything behind. I never met Elaf until she reached Cairo. Kawi wrote me on April 22nd that her Arabic teacher was planning to evacuate to Cairo and she asked me to assist them. So me, me and my friends, as we usually do, assemble a ragtag evacuation and funding team to assist Elaf's and her family's journey to Cairo. We communicate with her every day via WhatsApp. You will hear the rest of her story directly from her now. This message was recorded on Sunday, the 16th of April. So basically, my, my roommate like woke me up yesterday at like 9.30, like, hey, um, just in case there are some shootings in the south of Khartoum, maybe we'll have like power cut or internet shutdown. So if you want to maybe tell your family that you're okay, that something is happening. And like, like, what, what? I would like still like super sleep. So, and then like few minutes later, we start like to hear like the, the shootings, very heavy shootings. Um, never hear something similar, but more like in the, in the west part of the airport. And I live in the east part. <clears throat> but then it's like, um, happened also like in the north part of the airport, next to the presidential palace. And some like, um, yeah, army, like base or HQ, whatever. So then we, we hear like continuously heavy, heavy, heavy shootings the whole day until maybe 1 a.m. And uh, the scariest part was when they, they uh, when they were like um, uh, airstrikes uh, because the, the, the fight, fighter jet 
was uh, were um, uh, flying very very low, um, and yeah, and this morning like so the second day, uh, we woke up at five because it was like a huge noise, like a huge shootings, and then could sleep again a little bit, but then again like woke up at seven because it was uh, again like airstrikes, which is like very like the scariest part. Because you really feel like uh, that you can, you feel very small, you can not do anything. Um, otherwise, we all have like different like coping mechanism at home. Some of us are like just okay, let's not think about that. Let's play some board games, watch a movie, cook, um, speak together. Some are more like quiet, stay in their room, more like worried. We all have our like coping mechanism. Today we are a little bit more chill. I uh, think we're here less um, heavy shootings, maybe every 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I would say. Um, yeah, but we are just like all like very sad for Sudan, for the Sudanese people, because as we heard, like like the Sudanese population, Sudanese citizens, they are not like for the army or they are not for ISF. They just don't want to be part of this conflict and it's not the conflict like it's like it's not like a Sudanese conflict. It's just like a conflict between two huge ego. Um, so yeah, we just hope that it will like improve in the next like hours or days, and that it will stop. But we need just to wait. Yeah, wait until when we don't know, and wait what we don't know. But that's the situation now. The next two messages were recorded on Monday the 17th of April, one in the early morning and the other in the evening. But I was so tired yesterday and I think emotionally, emotionally like overwhelmed that I slept around, I don't know, 1.30 and I closed the window, I put the fan on and the AC and it's super loud in my room. So I didn't hear anything, I didn't hear the first airstrike this morning and when I just woke up, and I checked my phone, everybody was like, are you fine, are you okay, missing call, because of the airstrikes. But I didn't hear anything, I was so tired, and I'm still super tired. Um, yeah, but everything, otherwise, like, everything is fine. We'll see what happened today. Um, so today was kind of, like, scary. I managed to sleep at least seven hours, seven hours, because... I switched on the fan like in a higher speed like that I could not like hear what happened outside. So at least I had like several hours of sleep and then the whole day was I guess worse. More heavy shooting, more airstrikes and it's still the same like routine. Just wait. We try to read, we try to play some games, but we cannot be focused. I smoke like a thousand cigarettes today. Then we cooked at least like for two hours. You're like okay, like busy to do something else. Um, well, we were like in the living room. There was a huge explosion, and we don't know from what. And we have to like go like really like. I mean, we were in the living room, but we were more like inside the house, uh, where there is no window, and I was okay. But just like 
Yeah, heavy shootings, airstrikes. Um, they said that it should have been like normally like a ceasefire around four, but it was still like still uh, shooting. Uh, we still have water, not a lot. We still have electricity. We still have food, but like the main issue I think is the water because we maybe have like now 30 liters of um, drinkable water for five. But I mean to cook and to drink. And um, yeah, that's it. Uh, there is like very few, very few uh, tap water because we don't have water from the pipe, but it's in the reservoir. It's almost empty, so we don't cannot take a shower. But uh, yeah, we hope that it will be like more quiet tonight. But yeah, no hope really. The next message was recorded on Tuesday, the 18th of April. Um, hi Dodi. Um, so, not the best night of my life, I will say. Um, even if it was like more calm, I would say. Uh, less shootings. So, um, but now there, there are some cases of um, looting uh, from uh, RSF and some cases of uh, sexual violence. We don't know if it's like a. Um, uh, verified or not, but it seems to. So it's like very scary. I think it's like even more scary than like the shootings because you'd never know like if they will come, when they will come, if they will manage to enter. So, so yes, so uh, yeah, I had some like issue to fall asleep. But then I could sleep at least maybe five hours, which is not bad. And um, Sounding is maybe a little bit more calm in our like area. Still some shootings, but less um, uh, yeah, less shootings I would say. But my friend in the other side of the airport told me that I'm still ongoing. Um, there is some rumor of like a ceasefire today, but they already have like claim like that there will be like two ceasefires and like nothing happened. I mean. They didn't respect it, so we'll see. We'll see what happened today. The next two messages were recorded on the morning of Wednesday, the 19th of April. Good morning, Adi. Um, okay, thank you for your message. Thank you so much for your proposition if we get evacuated to Cairo. I've heard if there is an evacuation, maybe they go to Addis or Nairobi. But I don't know. You have no idea. This is why I was not respected. So, and this morning still shooting against bombings. Um, we still have a lot of food and electricity for maybe 10 days. But uh, we don't have any more water, uh, tap water. And any water in the, we have like a big, like a, how do you call this, like reservoir on the roof. It's empty also. So we have probably water that we have stopped for five days, maximum five, six days. Maximum. So yeah, we'll see. For now, there is no plan because, like, uh, yeah, all the pipes are like completely like dry. There is no water coming. Um, they say that there is like a small shop, uh, like a small supermarket, maybe 300 meters from my place, that maybe will open between 12 and 4 today, but. I have no idea if it's like very safe to go in the street, especially as a foreigner. And uh, if there will be like 
water there, if there will be food, if there will be like a lot of people, we have no idea. So yeah, we just need to wait. The next messages were recorded on Tuesday the 25th of April, one at 11 a.m. and the other at 11 p.m. Good morning, Gaudi. Um, so I don't know, like the last voice note that I did, but basically we have been extra- extracted Saturday morning from our place to the UNICEF basement. It was like at 6.50 we received a call. Yeah, I'm here. I'm like, okay, can you just give us 10 minutes just to get ready? So we left, like, we, yeah, we left everything behind. So one year of life in Sudan behind us, like in 10 minutes, it was like so quick. We arrived in the basement in UNICEF, we like, started to organize registration of people. And then I was like in the food committee with my roommates and another guy. And then we're like, okay, we have to define what stock we have. Uh, do we have gas? Do we have stove? And we had nothing. There was no gas, no stove, no pan. And so we had to cook for 120 people for lunch. And then people just kept coming. And we and we cooked the dinner for 240 people. This was insane, pretty insane. I've never worked on in like into like logistics or food or whatever. So basically, for lunch was uh, tuna and white beans. And for lunch was a mix of kidney beans, green peas, some tomato sauce, and with some couscous. We managed to do some couscous with like the, the kettle. But for 240 people, and people were quite happy. Then I slept like one hour from one to two a.m. I would say. And at two we had to wake up, um, assess the stock that we have, uh, divide in 13 patches for the like the, um, the evacuation. And then we should have left around three or four, but then we left at like 7 a.m. on Sunday. And it was a huge, huge convoy. We were like 1,000 people, so maybe 100 vehicles. And normally it's like 12, 13 hours from Khartoum to Port Sudan. And it took us 32 hours. This was completely insane. It was so long because every time like a uh, flat, like a, um, like, um, like a car, like, broke down or like um, flat tires or whatever. So all the convoy has to stop. So we did, we like, we arrived in Portugal after 32 hours. I've never been dirty like that in all my life because the last shower was like on Friday. And um, also then, um, what else? Uh, my like colleagues from UN Women uh, office in Portugal like welcomed me yesterday night. They brought me to like a very nice apartment. I could have a shower, wash my clothes have some food, they were like super nice with me, and I slept for 11 hours. And uh, it was like, oh my God, I feel so good today because after a shower, after like a lot of sleep. And now we are waiting. Uh, finally, there's no flight uh, leaving Port Sudan. So we have to leave by boat, by ferry. So some people will leave today, but like the, I'm not like a priority because I'm not a family. So probably I will leave tomorrow around noon. Uh, by ferry to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Then from Saudi Arabia, we'll take a flight to Nairobi because it's like the hub for the UN. And then from Nairobi, we'll fly back to Geneva, but no timeline. I have no idea when it will be. And yeah, so it's gonna be a very long, long evacuation since we left our house Saturday early morning. Anyway, uh, all good. I feel like very fine and good mood and yeah i'm like super lucky to be here um, yeah. 
My day was quite good. I met my colleagues from Union Women based in Port Sudan this morning. I went to the office. We followed the staff meeting. Then um, went to a place where there was like the immigration uh, in a hotel to facilitate. And they were like uh, stamping the passport with like the exit stamp for people leaving today by boat. And I could not have the exit stamp because I was not leaving today. So we left this place. And my colleague was like, okay, now it's time for your, the beginning of the, your post-war therapy. So we go by the port, by the sea, and we will eat some fish. They're like, okay, fine. Went there, eat some fish. Then they were like, okay, now we are going like, to do like, a small like, boat tour to see like, some fish and corals and reef. And they're like, okay, fine. It was super cute. They were so nice. Then I went to WFP to check if I was on the list of the boat of tomorrow. I was not. So we like to like a lot of call and emails to put me on this list. And I have to check tomorrow morning if I'm on the list. Um, yeah, that's it. Some people left today. Uh, but not sure that there, there will be a boat tomorrow. So let's see. The next two messages were recorded on Wednesday, the 3rd of May. So, I don't know if it's very interesting, I came back on Saturday night from Amman and uh, my parents picked me up at the airport and we went to like a very nice place to eat, good food, good wine and then there was like a techno party and I was like, yeah, maybe it's a good idea just to change the mind and I went with my brother and it was all my best friends, so it was nice. Um, and then Sunday at home, I was kind of like super numb and like not feeling anything. And but at least I cried for the first time when I went back by plane, like from Amman to Switzerland. Like I cried like for one hour. It was like I think it was like just emptying myself, and it helps. And then uh, I was super down, I think Sunday night, again, super anxious. And now since like I left Sudan, I do a lot of night. I have a lot of nightmares, anxiety, stress. And yeah, during the night I woke up like several times. I have to like, to run or yeah, nightmare. I mean, and yeah, otherwise I'm trying to keep busy. I think it helps when I'm like alone, it's not like, very good and keep busy um, just chill with people try to go out I mean like in the nature um, yeah maybe we'll go to Paris this weekend to meet some uh, people from Khartoum some of my friends uh, yeah I don't know if it's like better to be surrounded by people who who live like the same experience or with like totally different people like that um, to talk about something like different but I don't know. Um, I will have like a psychological counseling tomorrow with the UN, like about like stress management. Uh, yeah, I hope it will help. Anyway, um, I hope you're fine. Uh, are you in Silicon Cairo? Because I remember that you told me that you will maybe travel. I don't know. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's like a that I'm super empty and no adrenaline anymore. And we were like slow, like slow life. Um, yeah, for me, I think it's better when I'm like surrounded by people and we like close, like close friends. I can just be myself and just like chill. 
but when it's like people that I haven't met for like for a while and then I have to keep the conversation and explain again and again. It's so exhausting. Um, so yeah, we'll see, we'll see. And super good for the architecture of cows that they arrive in Luxor. Um, yes, yeah, so so today we you know we have the honor to talk to Elif. Um, she was introduced to me by our common friend Kawe. Um, I think on twenty second of April. So by the time Kawe was still in Khartoum and Elif was also still in Khartoum, and she texted me says, "Oh, uh, I know someone who's trying to you know trying to make a journey from Khartoum to." Uh, to Cairo, uh, you know, can you assist them? And so yeah, that, and then we just connected uh, via WhatsApp, and then uh, since then yeah, we just uh, you know write daily uh, and she left you know messages, and I think we saw each other for the first time I think about seven days ago. Um, so that's Elif. Um, and then uh, with us, we have Peter. Uh, everybody's familiar with Peter. Uh, he's been our co-host uh, with uh, Cairo Calling. And also joining us from the UK, uh, Laura. Hi. Okay, so so we, we have a big group. It's a special episode uh, recording uh, today. <laughs> uh, so Peter and Laura are connecting from the UK. Uh, I'm me and Elaf, we are connecting uh, from Cairo. So... Thanks. Thanks, Daddy, for bringing us together. Welcome, Elaf, and welcome back. Uh, welcome back, Laura. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm Elaf, it'd be great to know more, more about you and what things looked like for you before this all started, like um, at the beginning of April, like what was your, what was your life like? My life was very peaceful, I would say, you know. I was just a normal person in Khartoum doing their job, going out a lot to get food. It be growing life, you know, like there was nothing, I would say, extraordinary. But life was really peaceful and nice and I was enjoying what I was doing. I was doing like many things at the same time. So I was really enjoying life. So like changing of that routine. It's really weird. Like, still is it, tell us, tell us a little bit about 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 what you were enjoying. What was your favorite food to go out to get? What were the things you were doing? Who you who you lived with? My favorite food, I would say sushi. Sushi. And, oh. sushi. I know sushi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm Italian, <laughs> so we can talk <laughs> more about pizza. <laughs> But at the same time, of course, but yeah, that's our market. So, and what, what, what were you, what were you working on? What did you do for fun? What I do for fun? I do art, like lots of like different forms of art: embroidery, painting, material, water painting, like clay forming. So, like, yeah, different. On support, it's really therapeutic, I would say. And you were working in Khartoum. This is like kind of a very. The answer would be very weird. So 
I studied nuclear medicine. So I was working as a nuclear medicine specialist in our hospital as a part-time. But also I was working as a teacher. I was teaching Arabic for non-native. And I was a lecturer at the university. I was teaching physics. Wow. And I was also a tour guide. Wow. A personal translator. So if we'd um if we'd visited um earlier in the year, what would you have shown us in Khartoum? I would have shown you uh, in Khartoum, I would show you the man and Mahadi Tom and the house and big soup in the man big market. It's very vibrant and nice. And there is like People are always surprised by this information, but there's like seven museums around Khartoum. People only know two or three, but like there's literally seven around Khartoum, and they are all open. And you wouldn't try and take me to seven museums in a day. I don't like that. That's too much. That's too much. One is one or two museums, maybe enough. (laughs) It's not possible, but like generally, you know, if you are staying for a week or so, at least you should see two, three, or four. Let's say. I'm just stating that people don't even know that they exist because they don't go there and they aren't really public showing and, you know, but they exist. And outside Khartoum, I will take you to Kassinger Island. It's really nice up north. And then there is like, uh, I went from my experience, I went to Fort Pyramid site in up north Khartoum. So I would take you there. And I would take him camping in a there for at least two nights. And Kerima, we also got Gula. And if we have time, if you stay more than a week, because like things are a bit far from, let's a bit far from each other. So if you stayed more than a week or two weeks, we can go uh, through Jabal Mora. Jabal Mora is like a mountain, Jabal means mountain. So it's a really nice place. And it have like a small kind of, not concrete, like a waterfall beside it. So it's a really nice, it's a bit hard to get there. The journey takes time. But if you have time, we, you should definitely go to Japan. That that sounds amazing. Doty does tours in Egypt, but like you sound like you have a whole, a wider range. Yeah. Oh wow! Thank <laughs> you for that, Peter. <laughs> Is Jebel Mara the mountain that looks like the the pharaoh hut, the one that is uh, close to Karim? I think. No, 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 but it's not close to Karim. Okay, there is a mountain that is Jebel something, of <laughs> course, <laughs> close to a also a Roman Roman uh, site. What's the name? Alberket. Okay. Did you go to that one, Laura? How much? Yes, I visited this the uh, Jebel Barkal uh, and did a camping close by. It was amazing. Did you climb? Uh, yes, 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 yes. It was a magical experience because you climb up this mountain that ends up like the pharaoh um, um, hut. I don't know how to say. Uh, and so it takes this this uh, snake shape, and this and the name is reminding of of that shape. Let's say, and it was I think very early in the morning to escape the heat. So it was a very magical view. 
And in uh, in uh, Omdurman, I remember uh, like visiting the market. It was so crowded and so vibrant and full of life. And I bought there uh, my wallet that I still have. <laughs> that is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm, I'm keeping. <laughs> hoping that it won't break <laughs> but yeah Amazing. i have very nice memories of my my time in uh, in khartoum and in the north and so i love you had i love you had a very busy like wide-ranging life involved in all sorts yeah. of in all sorts of things you were staying then with your you, you lived with your family like all in and up so it's your it's your mom and some sisters yeah four sisters wow there are five girls you're the you're the biggest yeah i'm the biggest right 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 and you like you did you did things as a family or you were like so busy so busy with your all your activities you didn't get so much time me for the weekend so normally at least i would have like a day in the weekend free and we'll go out or like have like something to do with my sisters nice so when did you um how to, when did you realize things were getting getting to be different and things had gone wrong in Khartoum? I think after a week from the war, you know, because like the first couple of days we felt like, okay, those are just a couple of clashes mm. and they will solve their problem or they will get outside of Khartoum because the army is like definitely a lot bigger than the RSF. So we thought it would just be a couple of days and then they will leave and it will end. Mm. But things turned into weeks, and now it's a month. And here it doesn't seem like it's gonna end soon. It just got started getting worse. I think after a week, the Buccaneers are housed a small market in the neighborhood. It was running out of food. And there was no gas, no electricity, almost no water. Under now, we went off. We had still like good storage of water, and we had like batteries. For the house, so we had like access to electricity to charge our stuff. But lots of people from the first day forward must turning get access to water and electricity for almost a month now. So it, it's very hard for a lot of people until now. So I think after that week, he realized that, and then it wasn't just us, it was our family, some of our neighbors. Relatives who were living very near those splashes, they came and stayed with us. So we needed like a good storage of food. And we had kind of like leftover from the Ramadan as a lot of like uh, flour and sugar and like the basic things. But with all the kids and elder people, we needed like more supplies. It was impossible for us to get out of the neighborhood from anything. We literally lived on our I think I went on biscuit for a week. Hmm. Like, I, I didn't even realize that because, you know, you will save the food for the elder people and the kids. And then the people yeah. in the middle will just eat whatever because you don't even feel hungry. I think after a week, I lost the feeling of hunger. It just goes away. So after a week, we bit, we literally start making, like, plans how we're going to get out of hospital because it was very hard to get out. Like, buses were getting robbed. It wasn't very safe. Lots of people got shot with like just random flashes when they were driving. So it wasn't even safe to leave the house. And there is no police. Like the police literally wasn't anywhere found to be found from the staff source. So there's no any security. 
So it's not just the army and the RSF, it's also all the people who had the tiniest motive to steal or rob or loot. So imagine all of that. It was really intense fight with the war. So I started planning to leave. And then, yeah, for sure the plan was like to get to Egypt. Because actually one of my sister was here. My sister was after me, she's 21. She was here a week before the war, literally six days before the war started. She came to Cairo with a friend. So we started making plans with her, how we're gonna come, and if we find a way or a bus, cause also there is no gap. So everything is in the black market. So literally imagine everything multiplied by 10 or 20, literally the things that were 20 or 30 SDG before the war become 300, 500, and multiply by that. So it was very hard, like planning and like, and I would say I'm a good in planning. <laughs> if I travel, I make a very good plan, I stick to it. So if it, even if it shifted, it would shift, let's say minus or plus 10 percent. It wouldn't be more than that. I think everyone who travels knows what I'm saying. When you make your budget and you know, okay, I'm spending this, it should not be more than 10, 15, plus or minus. So I started planning and seeing how we're going to get out and everything. The first day I looked at the ticket, it was, it was 80, 80K. 80K, I would say, is like 100, 140, $140, I think. So before the war, just to keep you uh, just enough, before the war, the ticket from Cartel to Cairo, it was it was quarter dollar. You're talking about ticket of bus or which type of transportation? No, no. The airport was literally there was a plane that got like shot in the first day of the war. Mm. Part of the airport were like literally burned. So the mm -hmm. airport shut down from the first day. So only way out was the bus. Workers, yeah. Like even the planes that got came to Khartoum, they came at a very far, like, airborne at the end of Omdurman, and it was only, like, the evacuation of, like, the emphasis, uh, like, the evacuation of, like, the countries who were taking their foreigners or expats from Khartoum. That even though they couldn't take all the people, because it was very dangerous even to get to that airborne. So lots of my expat friends had to get on their own with a bus, to Barcelona or to Ethiopia and then get another plane. So I would say there's lots of expats who are still there if they cannot even reach the evacuation because there is no way. So it's not even easy for anyone. It's not like the privilege. It's not easy even to get out, even if you have money. Let alone if you don't have money, how hard it would be if you're stuck. Then I think this is the first day I said I looked at the ticket, it was 80, 80K. So I started like gathering cash, definitely the banking system stopped. Even the banking apps, I can't even transfer money to anyone because technically there is no electricity, no internet. So all the banking system is down. Collapsed, yeah. So imagine having to like, you need like cash more than, more than let's say 500K. That's a lot of cash. Like in normal days, I don't even move around with more than 10K. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have in my house more than 50K. So imagine trying to have this cash, like 500, 
and no values are open. So it's just like friends or clients or your friends, very dollars is a black market. And of course, the dollar spread went very bad because like there is no bank, so it's now bought by the black market. So even the dollars that was 600 before the war, people were selling it for 400 after the war. Economically, that's good. Well, so people who transferred their SDG dollars, they literally lost 20K on each 100. So everyone was losing literally money on every money exchange or anything. Then second day after I gathered some cash, I think Dodi, I was talking to you at that time. Yeah. And yeah. tickets were 140. Yeah. And then I didn't even find. So day one, it was 80K. The day two was 400. 120. Ah, 100. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 120. 120K. Mm-hmm. So this is like $200. So at that time, we had like a good off and we had meet so, uh, like a big bus, purple bus to Cairo. And we made a group and we gathered people, like 45 to 50 people, to complete that bus. Because we agreed with like um, the company and they said, okay, I'll well, send you a bus. And you just have to gather the money in the morning and we'll send it through the bank app. So alhamdulillah, that day we had internet, so it was possible to get that. Guess what? Next day, we wake up. The bus driver disappeared. He <laughs> stopped responding. Oh, no. Because now, after two to three hours, we discovered that there is a black market for the tickets. Now the tickets are selling for 200. Mm. Wow. And it was only cash. From that point forward, it was, everything was only cash. So it was literally impossible for me. This is like 200 and we are fired. So this is literally a million SDG. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to stand in front of it. Even the next family could have a million just laying around our cash. No one does that. It's not even safe. So it was literally very hard to get that amount of cash. And then after two days, I'm sorry, I got that cash. Now the tickets were 350. Oh my god. So Never ending. No. I had to tell you. Oh my god. But but loves to slow, slow down a bit. So this is about like the, the clashes break out and you're like, oh, it's just a bit of bad weather. Like are oh, they, they bombed something on the airport. That's fine. Let's stay at home and we can look after our relatives and they will go they will go out of town. And then you're saying like after a week, it was like the time passing that you saw are like this is this is too much now. We have to leave. Yes. Yeah. And then so how did you like how did you um like how did you like communicate with people? How did you get the money? Like what what was it like practically? Because it must have been like very unclear who has the bus like that you can take. Who wants to go? Where you get the money? Because all the normal systems, like the banking app and the bus website, are down. Like for me, I got the cash from like a supermarket nearby. So the owner is like he try like he knows the family and he trusts us. So like we can exchange big amount of cash. I transfer to him. At that day, we had internet, so we could use the banking apps. But normally, in normal days, no one would give you half a million in cash, and unless they annoy it. So the luck 
Um, or he had like lots of cash stored there, and he wanted to get rid of it because it wasn't safe for him to keep Zanulant to cash in his house. So yeah, alhamdulillah, he gave me. And so, so how do you, you go with like a little suitcase and you leave the shop with a suitcase with all this money in? Like, like in movies. It was in a <laughs> handbag and I was very scared. Oh my what? God. Were you alone? No, I had my uncle with me. But still, it wasn't safe. Like it was a walking distance, like 10 minutes from my house or 15 minutes. But I was very scared to like alone because I thought, why if someone took this bag okay now off. i don't even have another money in my bank account that's, that's all you didn't you didn't think like let's go with my four sisters like each bit carries like in a different bag goes with a different uncle and like we we <laughs> separated like that <laughs> i think i went to look for cash like so i wasn't even i didn't even know that person had that amount of cash oh my god so i was just looking around and trying to find like all the supermarkets around me the people who i work with or like buy from they definitely have cash but like definitely not everyone is gonna give you this i'm looking for six eggs and half a million yeah i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah definitely impossible so i'm gonna lie i got actually from two people like someone gave me i think 100 Zazar gave me the rest so and this like half a million was just for me so imagine the rest of the family Mm. And my sister, like the bigger family, because everyone else was traveling. So we are talking for more than two or three millions. And I see you are very resolute, let's say, very determined. Uh, and you, you, you said you are a very good planner as well. But I wonder, so when you made the decision to, to leave and to go through all this uh, mess to, to try to escape, uh, was the decision in, uh, entirely on you? How did you convince your mom and your sisters? Uh, were they on board since day one? What happened there? Did you have a conversation about it? My small family, like my mom and sister, didn't have a problem. Actually, my mom was like, don't supporting us. We should leave. Because like, it's not safe anymore. Everything is like lost. We, like, even life is not going to be normal after this work. So that would need at least four to five years just to get where he was before the war. So like, it's not gonna be normal again. So it was clear, my mom was on board, she doesn't have a problem. And my younger sisters, one was already in Cairo. So like the three that was us, they were minors. They were happy that we are leaving, but I think they are not really understanding all the aspects of war and how it's gonna end. So one of them was asking like, am I even gonna go back to school? Should I take the books? And she had exams after two weeks. So she thought that after two weeks, we will go back for her to take exams. This was Uh, her biggest. How old are they? Yeah. Like, I don't think they understood. Uh Like, yeah, we're just leaving. We don't know how or if we're going to come back. Yeah, sure. What age are they, the the smaller ones? Uh, The youngest is 10 and then 15 and then 17. Of wow. course, at 10, it's difficult to understand your life is going to change so much. She was worried about her exams. And yeah. then she was, okay, when we leave Kokairo, will I have to study all over again? Or <laughs> she is thinking, she is thinking ahead. Like that, that question, that question is coming. I, I like her, like, well, what about the exams in Cairo? Because if they are 
like it's their heart yani we did let's not go right like let's prefer, prefer the war right school because there were a couple of Sudanese schools here so she was thinking and asking am i going to take the same exams or should i i will i start studying different stuff but like can i study different stuff now mom but and she's saying this because she loves the studying or she she is under a lot of pressure in the studying no i think she like I wouldn't say she any under pressure. She loves what she's studying. Oh. Yeah, and she's at the top of her class. Oh, oh yeah, that makes a difference. <laughs> that <laughs> makes a difference. When when I traveled when I was 10, we went we went away for a year when I was 10 and I was sad I wouldn't be in the final year of school because I could have won the chess competition. <laughs> 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 I was very sad about that. Um but but elaf um how did like when you so your little sister is concerned about the curriculum and her exams that she needs she is going to come talk of like you are kind of leaving your home and you know that like like maybe you're not coming back soon maybe something will happen very separate them in all the how do you like how do you decide what to put in your bag how do you say goodbyes like how do you like how do you approach like that that like what you pack and how you say goodbye yeah, i think what to pack was very hard thing i was just looking at all of my like my room and all of my stuff and i would say i have lots of stuff you know lots of stuff lots of art supplies and painting and even my clothes you know so i was thinking of okay, the should just pack the essentials if bag is small You can't take everything. Just wasn't really a pleasure in the backing, I would say. Eventually, like, we had to, I think we packed mm. three bags. Three, like, medium or small suitcase, the five of us. And then each one had a backpack. But did you take, like, family photographs or, like, valuables or mementos or? All suitcase of family photographs. Oh. Like, since I was born or before that. Like my family literally loved, you know, taking pictures. So we literally had a full set of pictures. So it was impossible to take all of that. I think I just took that, like one or two of the pictures for my sisters when they're very young, because I think this is where they would like to look how they're looked for like 10 or 16 years. I think I took four or three pictures of each one and then a couple of family pictures. But I thought I'm not more than 20 mm-hmm. pictures. And I don't even have them to just embrace. I was planning to actually to do that this year because it's a lot of pictures. And when I move, I will be a full of this. So I was trying to find like a good place to take this all the lives. But now I'm really sad that I didn't do this. Mm. This is a lesson for all procrastinators like me. Mm. <laughs> was, that, was that the like hardest decision about stuff to leave behind? Or? I think like... Just keeping the house, even leaving the house, wasn't an easy decision. Yeah, it was rational. Like, my mom is a very rational person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for two, we are leaving. But this is the house that we built from scratch. This is the house mm-hmm. that my father built. And this is our only house in Kharto. So, we've been living there since 2013. So, one of my sisters was born in that house, the youngest one. So, it's very sentimental to us, to all of us, all the important things that The draw we have, the scratches, 
on the wall from my younger sister. We, we even keep it. We don't even wash it. It's like mirrors. All of that, like, I just took pictures of everything, every corner mm. in the house, and I recorded the video of every. <laughs> mm. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't finished with everything. So that was the way you said goodbye, like by recording things? Yes, and I recorded one of my sister in her room. Oh. And then, like, of course, then it was a happy memory, like recording and like, they, I think they were kind of happy about the new start. And also because mm-hmm. one of my sisters were here, so she was like telling them nice stories about Edith and Cairo. So I was like kind of excited to go there. Mm-hmm. We're very young, very young to understand that we are literally fleeing the country or the world. Mm. And it was more of like a hard trip. I'm going to a nicer place. I don't think they understood exactly. We're literally fleeing with no answers on or where we're going to come back or how. I'm glad that they didn't understand this because it's really hard to, you know, comprehend all that information. It's nice. So, so going back to the story, you had um, gotten half a million um, Sudanese cash from the supermarket, alhamdulillah. The bus ticket was going up like 100% every 10 hours. The bus driver was absent. Like, how did you, how did you leave Khartoum? Yeah, then it was impossible for me to get the amount of cash, like the ticket to Cairo on the day that we were leaving. We had to pick from Khartoum to Cairo. And at that time, there were like lots of problems with the border. And I had some friends who were stuck at the border. Turns out, most of the buses that were moving didn't have a trip ticket. Trip ticket is like permit for the bus to get across the border. And if you don't have a car or you are not in a bus, you can't cross by, you cannot cross walking. You need to be in a car to cross the border. And it's like 500 meters between two borders. So people who are stuck in the border for more than a week, because the bus will leave you at the border. So this becomes, here comes my good planning. I planned for a week. So I gathered really good information from my friend and the people who are traveling and and I think lots of the information on the media were wrong. Mm. So I was only taking information from very trusted people I know online and my friends who are really at that time at the border. And all like the black markets that, you know, came with all of this. And then buses were like taking people from border to border with $200, like this 500 meter. So it was really, it was really crazy situation, you know? And to manage all of this money, I asked, like, I didn't even have that much. So it was really hard to plan all of them. And then I shifted the plan from from directly to Peru, and I went to Lumbaba. Lumbaba is like, uh, uh, it's actually my grandfather's hometown, like my family's hometown up north, but I never lived there. So like almost my basic family and even my grandparents, they lived in Peru. But like originally they're from Lumbaba. So Lumpula is like up north, and it's like, uh, I would say, five hours from Khartoum. But due to the roadblocks and all the things that we're trying to avoid and going between roads, and also the bus that we took to Lumpula was very bad. We took 12 hours to reach wow. Khartoum, and it's only a... From five to twelve. Yes, yeah. we took it. To, it was a very hard 
And how did you catch it? Like you went to the bus station or like some other system? Yeah, we were at the bus station. I live near the bus station. So every day for two or three days, we were going to the bus station. Because also there is a black market. So there is a couple of offices trying to sell tickets. But technically, they are not really selling tickets. They are selling it to brokers who are selling it outside an alley as a black market. Mm. So if the official ticket to Google is 10K, it's selling outside for 50 or 60. Yeah. And same happened with the tickets to Egypt. So the first day was 40, second day is 60. I gathered the cash to 60. When I made the plans, I okay, now I'm going to I'm going to catch another ticket. Like, lower the cost. Because we are five. It's impossible for me to pay a million and a half just to get across the border. So the days that we came, I gathered the cash to go. I went and there was no bus. And the last boss that came, he asked for 120. And each time you're going, you're going all five of you, or you just go and you call them if it... Just for me or my uncle. Because also the bigger family or the neighbors who were with us, near us, they were also trying to look into the room. So we were also trying to find the possibility of uh, renting the whole bus and everyone will just pay or will share it or... Right, also difficult. So whenever we make an agreement with a bus driver, next day is a black market raises, so he will just leave us for a higher bear. So if it's just you going to the station, how then do you communicate to your sister and mom to come over or do you go back home? How does it happen? The phone was working. Okay. Yeah, the phones were working. So we had like a bit electricity mm-hmm. to charge our the battery so we have like good communication and the station is like 15 minute walk mm. or 20 minute house so it's not far we can go like twice a day one, one time in the morning one time in the evening to see if there is any available bus to see the black market if they're gonna get any buses and for literally three or four days all of our stuff were packed we packed everything and we were just waiting whenever someone goes and we find tickets we'll just go and we, at the end, I think every family of the bigger family, they're like, let's say, four or five smaller family. So every family was doing that because it was impossible. All of us would get on the same bus. Because mm. let's say each broker is a black market, they will give him 10 to 15 tickets. So he will not even sell it all to you. He will sell you two or three, and then he will try to sell it higher to the next buyer. So it's even impossible to get a whole family in one bus. Mm. And I think one of my uncle came with us. So we were like five, four of us, like five of us, but like my younger sister, she was sitting for me and my mom. Then my uncle. So I, we were very lucky to find five tickets from one bus, that bus that we came from. And then my uncle called me like, okay, I found buses, it was 120. Just 100, maybe 100, 110 actually, not 100. 110, let's come to the station. So... So yeah, we just gathered our stuff. How did you feel in that moment when he called and say, I found it? Well, like this was so surreal because like for a week, we packed our stuff and every day we would go to the station. So for a moment, I lost hope that, okay, now we're just staying here. People are going to die of hunger because like, oh, there were no food in the shops, the markets are closed. Like literally, if he didn't die of clashes, he would die of hunger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And my grandparents, they had like literally like medication. So we really needed to get outside just for film. So 
they could find their normal day day life education. Mm. So from there now we reached to the station, and then uh, we took the bus. Mm-hmm. It was very crowded, like not. So it was like I would say 40, 45 seats, and then they charged the people to stand in yeah between the seats, you know the space between the seats and for twelve hours. Yes, there were literally like seven or eight men. They were standing for twelve hours, mm. and not less than sixteen kids between them. It was it was literally a crazy, a very crazy ride. Like one hour it was supposed to be five hours, but like just to get out outside of Khartoum. With all the roadblocks, it took us for three hours. Could you stop to go to the toilet or? Yep, because everyone, when the war started, just closed their stores and went low. So you only find water or just biscuits. Like there's no any open restaurant or anything. But yeah, basically we had like enough water with us from home. Mm-hmm. So we survived. I think in time of crisis, you lose feeling. That the basic needs. And after a week, I felt like I don't really need three meals a day. Mm. Do you think it's it because you were too busy, too worried, or uh, just because? Like at that time, they will feed at the house. Mm. I wasn't really hungry. And even if I make food, I will give it first, let's say, to my grandparents, mm. to the kids. There were like lots of kids because all the families were there. So after you finish, you don't feel like it's really necessary. Like, I love food, and I'm really love And I have a very tiny stomach. So when I eat, I eat, like, half a sandwich. So when I eat, I eat something I really love. I miss. So I didn't really have the privilege, nor the time, to do the things I like. Mm. I would just have a cup of tea and a couple of biscuits. You know the long biscuits that people go to bar and eat? I think if you had it in top so we made a big batch of that biscuit just the day before the war. <laughs> Here in Havosi, so we a big stock of biscuit, very large. What's the name of these biscuits? We just, in Sudan, we just call it squid, squid chai. Okay. Like it's one biscuit that you dip a tea of milk. It's a real when I have biscuit. I think also the Egyptian have the same form of it, maybe different, a bit different ingredients, but like the same shape. Did you get your appetite back after arriving in Cairo? Yeah, what is the first thing that you ate? The first thing I ate was in America. First things I ate, or first things I ate, and I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> this <laughs> one that you loved it, yes. But when it lost us, the food I <laughs> the big Mac I had in oh, my sisters were very like you know happy that we reached Cairo and were like Egypt and they said okay first place we should go I think for kids happy mail and play the ultimate happen but my youngest was really my youngest sister was like we should go to McDonald's. I was like, oh my God, we should go, definitely. And we went, and like, I was so happy with that Big Mac. It was the best. Wow. <laughs> it's like, it's so wow. But that's nice because you like, everything had changed, but like McDonald's is familiar. 
Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I was so happy with Amit on the you feel the blessing. And like even today when I went to get groceries, vegetables, and you know, normal things that we felt. And I was so happy I said, okay, the mom we got I got back to my normal routine and I'm cooking some things that I love. And it was really nice not to have that back. I can't remember the last time I cooked, like literally today is the first time that I cooked something. I can't even remember what was the last thing I cooked in my mm. house. Mm. It feels so sort of, it feels like a very long time ago. Mm. It's also a reminder for, I don't know, um, not take things for granted when, I don't know, we are just bored of, oh, I have to cook today another meal. I think I will never get bored of cooking now. I will remember that I didn't have the privilege to cook. Yeah, so then um, you got to Dongola and you were a few days in Dongola and then it was a very arduous journey over. And then the same thing happened in Dongola. The same thing with the black market of right. tickets happened in Dongola. Mm. Like, I think they tried to control it, like the people who control the station or like the buses. They try to control it by, let's say, everyone who's taking people or selling tickets is higher than the average rate before the war. They are giving them a fine, are not selling petrol to them. Because all the buses come by Dongola, if they're going to Alpat, you have to stop Dongola. So normally you will get fuel there. So if you are, let's say, if people want to ill, then you will not get petrol or gas. How do you see the black the black market prices? Like the the kind of two hundred dollars to get across five hundred meters. That is that is just like extortionate and robbery. But the kind of the bus out of Cairo, the bus out of Khartoum, is suddenly like they are taking a massive risk, and they need to pay their driver more, and they need to pay for more fuel, and they need to pay for more bus. Like as well, how do you? Are you don't sound angry, angry with them? Like, uh, to me, like the people, not really a black market one. Like those buses for taking petrol and gas from the gas station. But let's say if it was a four K before the war, the gas station people are now selling it like twenty or thirty. Mm. But for bosses, they are literally getting it for best. And normally they have their own story and their own gun station. So I don't think they are even paying the black market individuals are paying for their own cars. But they just took, you know, because of that bad situation and people needed to leave, so they took advantage of that all. Because outside Khatmon, if you went a bit get fed out, it's literally by the same price before the war. And if you try to give it in the black market, people will report you. Mm -hmm. But the problem, since the war started, the police kind of managed it. So no one could actually ask you, this is a problem. Like there is no security, no anything. So if you committed any crime, who am going to report to you? There is no one to report you. Even if I report it to the army, the army will tell you, oops, I'm sorry, we're a bit busy, we can't really reach you. We... <laughs> so now all the things that people are trying to do, they are doing it by themselves. 
like delivering medication, trying to get teamwork. people who are lost, people who, you know, all the things that are happening in Khartoum, just communications between people who are trying to help and small organizations and initiatives. But it seems like um, at the same time you have like neighbors supporting each other, families supporting each other, strangers helping strangers, and you have at the same time like the the people trying to make a profit out of it and whatnot. So you're seeing like the, the best and the worst um, of what is going on. Um, wh- when I spoke with disabled people, um, they were they were really insisting on like this type of family support you will not see out of Sudan, like is is kind of really, um, is very, is very intense and available. And it sounds, it sounds very like amazing. Like you just sort of take in your relatives, like, um, like you have a lot of trust with your immediate family, with the shop owners that you knew, uh, with people along the way, like, so, um, it sounds very intense, those systems of support. Yes. I think like the basic foundation between Sudanese is very good. And like in time of crisis, they really stick together. You know, even if you don't have anything, even if you have a pistol, mm-hmm. you will give it to you ever. So like, I think that's, that's a very good thing. Yeah, of course, there are a couple of people who are trying to make profit or like stealing or whatever, but like, most of the people are what are or what is known of Sudanese. Like they are good people and they try to help even the strangers, not just your own blood or your own people or your neighbors. Mm. So I think that's a good thing. Like the people who travel from Khartoum to Medani, Medani is like uh, like a city outside Khartoum. So some of them are from Medani and they have houses there or their families there, but lots of them are not from Medani. So imagine every family that went, took their neighbors with them, the whole family, and they will just stay with them. And they will feed them, they will give them everything they need. Food, clothes, because they literally just go out. They literally didn't take anything. So I think that really, people really stuck together in this crisis, really like, Every family who have a house outside Fartu took a ha- took a family or two with them if they can. So I think that's really good. Wow. That's really how people are acting in crisis. Yeah, it's a great, great, yeah, value of I don't know unity, community. To that, it's it's so precious to share. I think, uh, yeah, time of crisis and time of peace, and to remember that uh, that you could count on this support as well. Mm, I have a question because you said that you you love arts, you do arts, and uh, so I wanted to to ask you, for example, did you bring any art equipment with you? Any of your I don't know brushes or paintings or none of that? We didn't anything, Kelly. Everything was kind of a bit heavy. And I was thinking about, okay, brushes, I can buy new brushes. Paint, I cannot really put them in the suitcase or they will crumble or break or, you know. So it's really hard to back painting. Normally, in normal condition, it's hard to back paintings. Let alone when you're bleeding. 
So I looked at my wall. I have like in my room, my wall is full of paintings. I have 20 plus painting hangs. And I looked and I said, okay, now I will take my favorite and I will take my brushes. And, took, and I took them and then I didn't have that space in my bag. So I said, okay, now I could paint a new one. Like get there. And I think I have pictures of all of them. And I have it on Instagram. So I think I will try to like replicate the things I made. It wouldn't be easy, but if I want you to paint the Big Mac that you ate. <laughs> yeah. The Big Mac of relief. Yeah. <laughs> I took a picture of it. It was all good. <laughs> Yeah, Dodi, Dodi was telling us, uh, he is telling you to look at the temples in Luxor. That that didn't sound like, that didn't sound like a good idea, to be honest. But going to McDonald's in Luxor sounded like a great idea, yeah? People who are optimistic side should stay in Luxor for two, three days and walk around and explore the city. Well, I slept at a slept of yes. Yeah, and it's an event. doesn't have time for people's moods. Yeah, like <laughs> there are things to see. Yeah. <laughs> but it was Luxor was really nice. And like people were really nice. And the city was actually quite like the buildings, everything was nice. So Luxor is the first place where you where you stayed after passing the border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We still we crossed the border, we went to a swamp. But we moved directly from a swan. So, so like this is this is kind of like several weeks that you are in a lot of like daily fear and daily uncertainty. Like, what were the kind of coping strategies with with family, with your sisters? Like, were you telling telling jokes or playing games or like helping your little sister revise? Like, um, like how how were you kind of? Like staying together. The third day, the third over there, like when we cross the Sudanese border, and then we stay the day at the border. I think that everyone was relieved because you know we even I even expected worse because people stayed a week or maybe more. So even all our papers is good, all the passport, everything is good. I also expected the worst. So I didn't, didn't really have high hopes of how long I was there at the water. Alhamdulillah, I stayed two days. I know two days seems very long, but I'm thinking about all of my friends who stayed a week. But then you're staying like mm. on a bus. Like, yeah. So yes, on a, bus. on a bus. So you're sleeping on the bus? Yes. For two days, I slept on the bus. And you are going to the toilet? Yeah, there was like toilets nearby because yeah. we were in the border. Yeah. One day on Sudanese side between the borders because there were like 20 plus buses inside the Egyptian border. So they said, they closed the door and they said, okay, we have to process all of them and for them to get out, then to take us in. And you were like, like washing in, in Luxor or on the border as well? Like, like, like hygiene and washing and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was, that was accessible. Nice. Like not in the border, but after the border, right after the Egyptian border, I think. Everything was easier because the toilets before the border, it wasn't really accessible. Let's say check shower or something. Yeah. But in the Egyptian border itself, I think, because we were staying for more than hours, I think the whole bus changed their clothes and, or they took a shower. And... 
And then I think the bus took us to Aswan. We took a ferry, and then from the ferry to Aswan, it was like two, three hours. And then, yeah, some people stayed in Aswan. Like, they took the place there, or there was, like, the people of the bus, we went through. Because we were together for three days, so we really made it connections, <laughs> and we asked, hey, if you have family, Egypt, and, you know, really, people really bonded, you know, and we were sharing foods and jokes, and everyone had, like, everyone had something different. So tell us, tell us about the jokes and the stories that you are hearing. I would say, I, I don't think dark joke, <laughs> but everyone would say, world their situation in Khartoum and then someone else will say oh you wouldn't believe it a missile fell on our neighbor house so my situation is worse than you yeah, that is um a, a bit of dark humor like that's the, that's a joke or <laughs> <laughs> so we're just trying to be because our like relieves that we all went through this and we're all together. And so what was your, what did you say in those discussions? What was your, how did you win that discussion? I think I would say I'm very lucky that I didn't really have any encounter with either Zar or Zarasif. Because also I'm in the medical mm. field. So they were taking people by force. If they did like, let's say, an surveillance of and the hours that found that you are a medical personnel, they will take you by cars mm. to heal their injured people. And so I was very scared that they're going to take me from my family. And that, like, it was very scary. So Alhamdulillah, I would say I'm very lucky that we went, like, safely. And I think no one stopped us till we got out of Fartum. Just, like, the sounds of um, the Air Force and the shooting was very scary, but alhamdulillah, I think it does. I didn't even look at the windows till I got out of Khartoum for at least three hours because there were lots of dead people from the army and the RSF around. So I didn't even want to run or see any dead body. I didn't even want my sisters to see that. And I think they don't even know that that exists. Thinking about this and remembering this, it feels like a dream. Mm. Does that really happen? Like two weeks ago, I was in Khartoum. How how are you processing it now that you've arrived? I think I'm still not able to process everything perfectly. Like, I think I'm processing I was on a survival mood for two weeks, and now I think, I think I'm out of it. Like, I'm thinking in a clearer way, and I'm trying to, let's say, process things and how things are going to be here, but, like, not with fear. Like, I'm not running for my life. Well, not, not not yet, like slightly different from a lot of normal people I know who didn't have to leave their country in the past two weeks um, with with nothing but a bag. Um, like, how, yeah, how are you seeing that that kind of life? Life now you told us about all these activities and things you were doing um, in, in Sudan and this very rich life that you had. Um, like, like you're still with your family, Alhamdulillah. But everything else is everything else is different. Like, do you see like you're in Cairo indefinitely, or maybe you'll be able to go back in a couple of months, or like, how do you see now? I I still don't know. Like, my mind is here. Like, 
but I don't, the situation is bad looking good. Like for me personally, I technically lost everything. Like the hospital working in part time, it got hit by a missile. I have no idea when it's gonna be repaired or get back to work. The health system, it's all crashed down. Like all the hospitals, like there is taking over like 20 plus hospitals. All the faculty is looted and burned. All the banking system is down. Like even the things I used to do for work, all of that is gone. Mm. The university is closed. One of the university actually got burned. So like for all of that to get back to normal, it's going to take ages. So even if they stopped fighting tomorrow, you wouldn't be like, ah, oh, let's go back. Sudan in general is not going to get back to what it was. I would say for less than five years. Mm. For me, to me, to get my normal life back, I don't even see that happening at any lifetime. So I see myself, I lost everything, and I have to start over. Yeah. I, I don't see even the possibility of starting over in Sudan is going to be possible. Because it's not even safe. Like, with no security, even if the war is up, with no security, no police, no, it's not even safe. If, if, if it's safe for me, it wouldn't be safe for my sister. Mm. So it's really terrifying to think of all of that and think that I don't know when I'm going to go back because I have my house there. I have like lots of stuff, my friends. Like I'm not ready to leave all of that behind and go. It's not easy. It's not like, I don't want to say I lost everything, but it's not easy to think, okay, I'm leaving everything and I should just think of the future. And what I should do when, like, I should start applying for a job. Actually, I applied for a job and I went to an interview. Yeah, how the hell did you do that? You were doing an interview and I'm like, how has she had time to do an application? Like, well, she's waiting for the buses or what? Like, what? I passed the interview. Uh-huh. So how did you do an application in this process? It wasn't really a very long application. I think a friend who I know, she's here in Egypt, she, she posted it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then I texted her, okay, what is the requirements? Can I apply? And she recommended me, they called me, and then the next day I went to the interview, and then they did another one of mine. Oh, so after arriving in Cairo, you did it? Yeah, arriving in Cairo. Well, clearly you are very talented oh, and smart. <laughs> but yeah. As you say, the thinking about the future is terrifying and I mean, there are so many uncertainties. Looking more at now your new day-to-day, let's say, what are the nice little uh, things that you are doing for yourself to go back to a normal life, to a routine? I see you have these nice hair braids. Um, You were talking about cooking a nice meal. So... What is it that you are going to go back to normal, let's say? I think today I had a very normal or one of my routines. I made pancakes. Mm. Oh, <laughs> nice. I, I love them. Yes, <laughs> I made chocolate sauce with like nuts. It was really nice. My sister was really happy with it. She, like I made it to a morning tea, milk tea. So I think what else did I? And I went and I got groceries. I love grocery shopping. Sometimes people find it weird because I think most of my friends, they hate grocery shopping. <laughs> but I love, I love grocery shopping. And I love shopping for, you know, cups and kitchen utensils. I feel like I have 
an old grandma sold inside me. <laughs> so what do you like about grocery shopping? Like, how was it today? I picked a lot of great fruits and vegetables, and I picked them all by my hand. Each one was really nice. You know, it was really therapeutic. Nice. And is your little um, is your little sister back to studying? Yeah, actually, she started studying. But did, did you find what curriculum she, because she needs to come top of the exams, but she does not know what. They went to the schools and asked about how the system is going to be in the exams. So there are a couple of options because they are all connected to the Ministry of Education in Khartoum. So the exam kind of comes from Khartoum. So they are trying to issue a way of like them to have their own exams apart from Khartoum. If that is going to happen, my sister is going to take the exams. If not, we're just going to have to wait for the Ministry of Education in Sudan. And I don't think that's going to happen soon. Because making the exams for school is the last. There is no any ministry working. There is nothing literally working in the country. So I think making exams for someone outside the country is literally at their least important. Well, Elif, if you, um, like, I think it's quite important your little sister comes top of an exam. So if they don't, if the ministry doesn't do it, yeah, we can, we can set an exam. We can set an exam for her, and she can come top of it. Uh, just, just let us know. Huh? Are you going to set up your own ministry, Peter? Peter. <laughs> yeah, like well, if we need to for for Yanni, the little for the little girl, Laura. You are you are you are helping me make the exam. Yeah, you can ask the questions about. Yeah, because I studied the whole year. Like how I'm not gonna get it's true. I mean my damn lady, you know, this feels very important to her because also she's thinking if she didn't get the exam, she will not be able to get to the next grade. Mm. Yeah. Even the schools there we didn't even get her last certificate in Sudan. Mm. But technically and pass, let's say, an assessment and with the exam of the last year, like her certificate of the last year, she's in sixth grade. So with her certificate of fifth grade and an assessment, she could take the exam. Mm -hmm. And the system can accept her. So yeah, let's hope that they have, the ministry will agree to them and they will have their own exam here. Then yeah, it's the same curriculum, of course. Mm -hmm. The same Sudanese curriculum. Did you find in your Sudanese family community to, to welcome you in Cairo? I have some friends here, actually. Already people who live here or also they came here. And after I came, I found lots of my friends. Mm -hmm. They came up at the same time. So I'm, every day I'm finding a new family or a new friends I know. They are here in Canada. And I'll be like so excited. Yes, we should meet where they live. Yeah. So it's really, I think I have lots of people here. And I also have a couple of Egyptian friends. I used to live in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. So half of my class was Egyptians, Egyptian girls. So I'm really glad that I'm going to meet my childhood friends of 14 years. I moved back to Sudan in wow. 2009. It was like 14 years, right? Yes. So 14 years, and I'm seeing them tomorrow, actually. Tomorrow is Saturday, right? Yes, I'm seeing wow. them tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. This is like my childhood, like, friends, and all of them were my best friend. So this really, every year I would tell them, yeah, maybe this year I would come to Cairo. Yeah. I would visit for, you know a month or two weeks just to see you girls. And every time something yeah. happens, mm. literally every year, I plan and I save the money and I 
try to book the ticket and something happens. So now no one believes that I'm here. Like someone actually told me it took you a yeah. war. No, to thanks to you. Yeah, you can you can take the other side. Thanks to Hanadi for supporting your school reunion. But God, yeah, it took me a war. It it would take me a war to see some people from school as well. Did you have accompanied some of the journey you helped? You helped facilitate like some things or. Oh, I love that's what Dodie was telling us, that he was helping facilitate some things. Um, anything, Dodie, that we didn't we didn't talk about or like how things have been for you? No, I think um, the, um, the, the incredible thing is that because, uh, you know, because right now I'm working with the embassy, you know, we have this, you know, the some of this UN organization have this uh, group, um, inter-agency group uh, working chat, right? Where the embassies and some UN agencies are talking and everything. And in the early days, right? Um, you know, because LF is, is on the ground, right? So we will be able to actually share information on the ground, right? Describing what's happening, right? Because you know, she's there, and 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 she's trying to get through uh, to to Cairo, and she she has this lot of networks with her family and friends that's going to going to make this thing. So we'll be able to actually inform a lot of people, right? They are, they are preparing to send their reports daily, what's going on in Sudan and everything, and then a lot of this information actually comes from me left, right? Because she was there, so yeah, and Elaf actually recorded. Uh, like a series of you know recordings that we share with some of the embassies on how to help their uh, you know their citizens out of Khartoum. Right? I still have the recordings. You know, like, okay, this is if you want to find the bus station, go to this you know place. This is how you deal with the be careful about the scams, and this is how you check right and uh, how the prices. This is how you to get there. And yeah, it's actually, you know, there, there are some cases where it's actually been, people have been using it, finding it very useful, so. And I think, I think this one case when, uh, like, there's a Sudanese person here, and she's trying to evacuate her mother out of Khartoum. And a week later, she's, uh, her mother successfully, you know, uh, exit uh, Sudan and managed to cross to, to, to Egypt, so. There was some real, you know, there was some real impact, uh, you know, of that. So he have done a lot of, you know, amazing thing, you know, to help other people while she's trying to scramble and figuring out, you know, all this daily and multiple, you know, daily drama about how to find, you know, how to, how to find transportation from one place to another. So it's quite incredible. So I'm really glad that people used my information. It helped them to get out because I think it was very hard to get reliable information. Because for me, it took me at least a week, and I had to pay more just to get good information on how is the street, where to get to the bus, and because I think there were lots of bad, info, like wrong information on the media, and I don't know who would benefit from putting wrong information. Mm. Why one lie and give bad or wrong? information in that such situation i don't know who would benefit from that i was really mad about wrong that information so, like about where the bus is leaving from or like like 
about like the black market. Okay, if I can help you, and then like lots of it will be just scams. Mm. Lots of people scam just to get tickets. A family who tried to book a bus, someone scams them for seven million, yeah. and there were no money, but they literally took two bags of seven million and they just ran away. So the family was just stranded with nowhere to go, no money, no bus. So like, it's not just bad information or wrong information, it's also scams. Mm. So, yeah, I think I waited like a week or it took me a week to get the right information. And Alhamdulillah, I was living next to the station so I could, you know, provide people with other buses going different places inside Khartoum with the daily prices because there is only two or three stations in Khartoum. And if you live very far from Khartoum, it's impossible to get there. You can't move with your car or it will, or it will get stolen. There is also no gas or petrol to fuel your car. Or if you found gas or petrol, one gallon is 100 SDG, $100. So it's technically impossible just to go and ask for the prices. So for me, I think it was good for me to provide for the other people I know, even my friends, for the nearest station to me. So yeah, alhamdulillah. Like, I'm not sad that I waited a week or I paid more because it kind of, it got me like a good plan and the plan turned better and it helped more people. So yeah, alhamdulillah. Yeah. I think I should put a book about my experience, you know? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. What, what, yeah. Title, yeah. what title would you give? How I Survived. Yeah. I think there are a lot of titles I yeah. should think how about. I, how I got the thing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What would you draw on the cover page? Yes, I know what I'm going to draw. I took a picture on, I think, after a week of the war from my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, a picture, the picture was for the sky. The sky was very dark that my sister thought it's going to rain, you know? It was very dark and black and, you know, when it's winter and you think it's going to rain. Mm-hmm. Well, this was actually from the burning factories or like the other things from like nearby or Midhartum and just the wind is carrying it and it's a lot like it made the whole sky black. Mm. I think I will put that and I will draw small tiny faint big map at the end <laughs> of that picture. A burnt one. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the mirage like, like on the other side on the other it's side like the of rainbow, the rainbow, you know? It's yeah, rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I wow. hope you find the pizza and the sushi that you need in Cairo. Clearly, you have all the friends, all the friends and school friends you need. Elaf, how is it like, um, like talking about this whole journey and the life before? Like, has this kind of conversation like been, been heavy for you or brought things up or... I think it feels surreal. Like part of me is not really still like believing that this actually, you know, everyone I think whenever we see like or read something about the war or like things around the world and you think of it and you think, okay, how am I going to help? And all those people are trying to escape. And I think you don't really believe or feel how they happen until it happens to you. And even when it happens to you, mm-hmm. you be on survival mode, so you don't even process or feel your emotions. So for me, it feels very surreal that this actually happened. 
and I actually survived and I actually escaped. And alhamdulillah, we are all in good health. Nothing happened to us. We're in three weeks. So I feel very lucky. I think I'm on top of the 5% or 10% people who escaped without really getting interrupted by the army or the RSF mm. or they didn't really come to our house while we were there. I have no idea how is our house now. Could have been looted because no one is in the neighborhood. I think there is a big possibility that the house is now totally looted. Everything is gone. But that's not really a problem right now. Like, I'm safe. My sisters are safe. No one of us is like got any injuries. No one is really. I don't want to say no one is traumatized because mm. everyone is traumatized, but like not an, as an emergency thing. Like, it's all manageable. Actually, alhamdulillah, mm -hmm. one of my sisters, the one who's Mabrook. after me, she's 21. <laughs> she just graduated from psychology. So she can, she can test her skills on all of you now. <laughs> <laughs> so she just graduated, like... It's incredible family. <laughs> Do you have um, a message? I don't know. You can use this space maybe to let, let, of, let go of something that you would like to really shout against the people that are causing all this trauma and all this despair? I think to those people, like the army and the RSF, it's very sad that they didn't really care about the civilian. I'm really like angry and mm. sad that they didn't care about civilians. They just took us at like collateral damage. You wouldn't see any type of remorse in them, like shooting and killing. For both sides, it's like, it's literally like giving away candies. They wouldn't even hesitate. So it feels like the soul of human being doesn't really mean a thing for them. So this is really shocking to me. Like, no, I never witnessed anything like this, even at the worst protest that we had. Like, it wasn't this bad. And we had like lots of like bad things since a couple of years, like the revolution, and then 2019, mm. literally around this time, 2019, at the end of Ramadan, yeah. we had that big, massive massacre. You heard of it, like, like the one in Qiyada. So, and after that, we had the coup. And we had, like, five or six big hit of inflation. So, already Sudan was drowning. Mm. And, like, there were lots of bad things. So, we weren't really able to handle more things. People already went through a lot. People already lost a lot. People already lost their, like, lost their loved ones in the protest who died with their clashes with, like, oh. the police or the army. So we weren't really... Mm. I think no one is prepared for war, but, like, no one was prepared mentally for any of them. That the army who were supposed to protect the country... I, I don't know how they think or what is their strategy, but, like, it's, it's just sad to see that they are acting this way. I really want this to end because there are lots of people who can't really escape or can't even move. There are lots mm. of dead people in their houses that their loved ones can't reach them to bury them. Like, do you believe how insane this is? Like, when I hear things on Twitter or Facebook, like, sometimes I feel I'm in denial. I think I was in denial mode till I reached Cairo. And I was like, no way, no way this is happening. I was literally in denial. Okay. This is no way. I'm just ignoring everything. Everything I see mm. will just ignore it to the back of yeah. my head and khalas. So now mm. trying to process all of that 
I think it's still early for me to understand that all of this happened. I would never forgive them. I would never really forgive them because lots of my friends, they went through a very horrible things. Talking about like valuable things or money, no. Emotionally or physically. People who lost their parents, their loved ones. A friend of mine lost her brother. Like, it's very hard emotionally of people. So yeah, I think no one would ever forgive them for, for all of this. They had like, I think it would have been possible for this war to happen outside Khartoum. Mm. It would have been possible. But I think everyone has their hidden agendas, definitely. And all like the countries who are supporting each side, mm. you know, because definitely there are countries who are supporting RSF and there are countries who are supporting the army. So everyone has their agendas. And the bigger the shooting or the bigger the massacre or the bigger the people who are dead from the civilian, the bigger it's going to get better for one of the sides. And I'm a, I'm a normal civilian person who have nothing to do with politics. If you even ask me about who is that person mm. or what is the position of that person, I wouldn't even know. So I'm not even big on politics. I have not used it and I never loved it. But I know that everyone has their agenda and everyone like doing this or continuing in this and like the civilians for the life of people is not really a matter for them because it's just numbers. A hundred, a thousand, ten thousand dead. Okay, it's going to look bad on the other side for let's say um, the world or like for the country who are supporting us, you know? So it's very sad to see how the world is like Mm. Is working with countries that have war and how the people are supporting each side. Yeah. I mm. never thought would be supporting RSF. Mm. But yeah, here we are. I would like to bring a positive note because I remember the music was very important in the Sudanese protests and to bring people together as well. And we saw videos of people, women, girls, boys singing in the streets and you had, you had even um, protest song that you created for uh, for the 2019 revolution. So I wanted to know what role music played this time, and I don't know if you used music maybe when you were when you were on the bus journey, or if you have a song that comforted you in this time. I think we didn't really have a specific song, like let's say. You want to, if you mean like a national one or like a united one to connect people, we didn't really have that. People were very busy surviving. Oh, I think in protest, mm -hmm. it, those kind of songs work to unite like the needs of people. Mm -hmm. But I think now people didn't even have time to connect together. Like if the family is just apart in different parts of mm -hmm. Khartoum, it's even hard to get to them. Let alone try to think of like a song or like, it, it was very hard. Is there, is there any message you've been telling yourself each day to get through it or like any anything that's been important to you? I think for me, like for me and my family, we were like, okay, how bad disconnect, like I'm a rational person, me and my mom, we are very like rational and logical. So we're thinking, how bad could it get? And we were prepared for the worst. And then we would say at the end of the day, okay, nothing is going to happen that's not written 
for us. Like in Islam, we have like things that mm-hmm. uh, like everything mm. is destined. Everything that's gonna happen in your life is destined. When are you gonna die? How are you gonna die? What's you gonna eat today? What will happen to you at the end of the day tomorrow? It's destined. Yes, you have to the choice to choose everything, but it's already destined and written. God papers. So we were just saying every at the end of the day, uh, like okay, nothing is gonna happen to us. That's not this. Yes, we don't know what is it, but yeah, that's fate, and we are okay with it. We will be prepared for worse, and we will try to make it through all of this. But yeah, it was a very dark week or two. It was very dark. I think I never thought of darker possibilities in my life and I've been through lots of hard situation I would say in my life so I never thought I would have a day will comes I would have to think of such bad possibilities what what will happen and I even thought of what if the RSF broke into our homes so I even made a plan with my sisters if someone broke in the armies RSF any armed group we will just go to this tiny room it was my room and it was the most cured one. Like it was tiny, there is no mm-hmm. ele- like uh, electronics in it. So even if they saw it from the windows, there is nothing to steal from inside. And we will just go and lock the door. And the door was very like good steel door. So it wouldn't really break. Mm. So we made a plan to escape and run to that room if someone break in. To think of that and to prepare my mm. sisters for that, like it was it was totally insane. I'm just in admiration of all your strength and mm. courage and yeah, and for sharing this with us and how you keep keep kept strong for your sisters, especially. It's very special, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think like this is the things that you don't really uh, have a choice. It's just it is what it is, you know. You have to do it. You mm. don't really have the luxury of uh, what do you call it? The luxury of choice of choosing. You're just going to do it. You just have to do it. Like, because no one else is going to do it and it needs to be done. So me and my mom, we had to be like, to act in denial. And I would say to my sister, one of them was really sentimental about the house and my room and when we're going to come back. The one who's 15, she's the most emotional one. And I told her, we will just go to Egypt for a month or two. And as soon as things settle down, we will come back. So now when she asks about the house, I will give her the hard reality, you know, and why she didn't really watch a lot of news and she doesn't really have social media. I think the new generation doesn't really use Facebook as much as, mm. as us. So they use Instagram and Discord that there is nothing of the news is there. So I would tell her like, Anwar, you didn't really see what's happening on the street, but mm. there is no cartoon left for you to go there. <laughs> give her the hard truth. There is nothing for you to go there. Like, where do you want to go? No one of your family is there. My grandparents, every one of our bigger family also moved. So no one is there. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do there? Like, do you want to do you want the house or what do you want exactly? So I think she will come to the realization that like, okay, the mom. And then I think those days she's happy with the situation here. I hope you can break that to her well, and the way it needs to be broken. Uh, gently, gently, or very suddenly. Um, I am glad your destiny uh, brought you to McDonald's in Luxor. 
Um, I am glad we are part of your 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 new life, Elafon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We know that it is a grim topic, but I think these stories are important to listen to. Here in Cairo Calling, we care about the theme of transition, and escaping a war is one of such extreme examples. A month ago, people in Khartoum lived their normal life, and now everything has been turned upside down. At the time of this recording, the war still rages on without any end in sight. People of Sudan continue to stream out of the country trying to find safety. I would like to take this opportunity to thank uh, the following friends for supporting Elaf's family throughout their journey to Egypt and their stay here in Cairo. Abdel Fattah, Hashem, Tarek, Peter, Laura and Leo, Tema, Daniela, Monica, Nitin, Asma, Sarah, Martin, Mao, Anna, and Hanuri. Thank you so, so much for your generosity. This episode of Kaira Calling was hosted by Peter and Laura, edited by Tarek, introduced by Dodi. Thank you, Marin, for sharing your audio notes and Ella for talking to us. <laughs>